Political movements and the activists within those movements always struggle in many ways, with one another, with competing movements and ideologies, and with finding strategies that will affect change. In feminism and on the left, the question on how and if to engage with detractors and with those who have opposing political views is a contentious one. Some believe we must only work and engage with those we are in agreement with in terms of our political principles and aims, and others believe we must try to reach as many as possible, even if those we are reaching have very different worldviews than us. Is there any point, for example, in radical feminists engaging the right in terms of their efforts to fight gender identity legislation? Or will the optics of that kind of engagement harm the movement? Will we lose in the long run? I spoke with two feminists about this question in an effort to bridge the gap and create understanding among those who may disagree on this controversial question. Kathleen Stock is a feminist, lesbian, mother, and professor of philosophy. She has been writing about sex, gender, and transactivism at Medium. Natasha Chart is a feminist living in western New York State. She is board chair of the Women's Liberation Front, WOLF, and a member of the cross-partisan Hands Across the Aisle Coalition. I spoke with the two of them about this issue of allying with, engaging with, or working with the right, in particular on the gender identity issue, over the phone. Here's that conversation. Okay, so first I'm hoping you can both start by just telling me a little bit about yourselves and your background in in feminist activism. Kathleen, uh, maybe you can start. Okay, well, um, it won't take long because I don't really have a background in feminist activism. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a bit about yourself then. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, I'm uh, academic uh, in a philosophy department, and so I spend most of my time teaching and researching and most of my work has been on fiction um, and imagination. So I have had a couple of publications in the last few years on sexual objectification. So I've had an interest in feminism. I am a feminist and I've had an interest in feminism from a philosophical perspective. But I got involved um, in, I guess, fighting uh, sex self-ID in the UK because I was so frustrated with the lack of any kind of fight being put up by academics. And I felt, this was about six months ago, I felt I could potentially make a difference to the debate given my platform. So I'm I'm not, like I say, I'm not really a, a natural activist. I, I would only intervene in an area where I thought I could, there stood a, I stood a good chance of being able to do something um, and make a difference. But I did feel I could, so that's why I got involved, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, Natasha, how about you? Maybe you can tell me a bit about your background and um, a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so my background was I was raised as a conservative Christian in a household where my family believed that women already had all the rights they needed. Thank you very much. Um, 
and maybe too many. And then I got older and I ended up in an abusive marriage, which was <laughs> should have been an unsurprising result. But uh, I, you know, when I when I left that and got into the workforce, you know, and something approaching a professional basis, I was mistreated on the job in ways that I'm pretty sure are because I'm a woman. And when I got interested in politics, I found out that working on the left in U.S. politics is not actually all that different from working in all the other sectors of U.S. life and industry where, you know, male colleagues tend to be boorish, obnoxious, and promoted above their evident capacities. And I got more interested in feminist activism. I was the, uh, I ended up becoming the uh, the campaign and fundraising director for a publication that was then called RH Reality Check and is now known as Rewire um, that focuses primarily on reproductive health politics. And I was uh, fired from that position in 2015 for voicing my opposition to both the sex industry and the idea that men could be lesbians, which I do not believe there is any such thing as a male lesbian, and nobody can make me say otherwise. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what's your your role in this fight against gender identity ideology and legislation been? How have you taken that on? So I'm on the board of the Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF, and we have, you know, a small, we're an all-volunteer organization. Uh, we have a small uh, core of women. There's probably about a couple dozen of us at most who run uh, social media education and uh, put, put legal arguments uh, before the courts in the form of amicus briefs. We're the only feminist organization in the U.S. that puts uh, gender-critical legal theory in front of the courts is there are many, many decisions that go through, you know, state courts, local courts, federal courts, um, and they set precedent that everybody else has to live by, whether there's legislation passed or not. So that's been our focus. But now we're stepping up our activism to do more on the legislative front. Mm -hmm. And Kathleen, can you tell me a little bit more about how you've decided to take on this issue and you know, sure. what the response has been like to you? Well, I started by blogging on Medium um, and pretty quickly, I think just really just because no other academic um, or very few other academics, that's not fair, actually, there were a few other academics, brave, very brave people who had been speaking up. But in my own discipline, um, no one had, which is philosophy, as far as I know, anyway. Um, uh, and I... Um, so I started blogging and then things kind of just spiraled after that, I think. Or, I don't know if that's the right verb, but they snowballed. Um, so I got involved quite quickly with a woman's place and I was asked to speak at their Brighton meeting. Brighton is a um, very uh, queer city. It's the sort of primary place you would live if you were gay in in, in the UK and um, it was a quite a volatile meeting to speak at, but very um, inspiring as well to meet some amazing kick-ass women on the platform with me. And then from there, I got commissioned to do a 
couple of pieces of writing for The Economist. And um, then, you know, I mean, I've, there was also sort of a bit of a furore around it all because I was, uh, the, you know, there's protests at my campus and there was plots to get me fired and all sorts of things like that. So the press started reporting on that. Um, and since then, I've just kind of continued in the same vein, doing bits and pieces for various um, online publications. I've spoken at the House of Lords at a women's place meeting. Um, and yeah, I can't, can't think what else I've done, but that's the sort of thing I do basically write and occasionally talk and, and do a lot of tweeting. <laughs> Great. Um, and I mean, I want to talk, obviously, I mean, a big reason that I wanted to talk to you both at the same time was because I wanted to talk about strategy and to talk about this, um, let's call it a large conversation that we've been having mm -hmm. <laughs> on <laughs> within feminism about the best way to combat gender identity ideology and legislation and who we should be targeting, whether or not we should be engaging with, you know, right wing people who are also opposed to gender identity for various reasons, gender identity legislation for various reasons, or if we should just be talking to other feminists or to the left, sort of, you know, this idea that how... Uh, how allyship works and how far that needs to go. I mean, are we trying to engage with people who we're allied with on other issues, just this issue, things like that. So maybe from that angle, you both can talk about your strategies in trying to open up this conversation and to fight gender identity ideology and legislation first, and then we'll move into some some more specifics around engaging with the right and that question um, afterwards. Um, Natasha, why don't you start? Yeah, um, so a couple of years ago, uh, there started to be some conversations uh, with conservatives in the U.S. Before that, I, I don't know that any gender critical feminists had really talked to, and I use the term gender critical feminist loosely, um, just because it's useful, um, had talked to conservatives before that, even though, you know, in 2014, there was an ampersand, um, Barry Deutsch, he's, he's kind of popular in queer circles in the U.S. as a, as a male feminist and has been for a long time you know, did a cartoon comparing radical feminists to um, to conservative Christians. And then in 2016, like right around when we were starting to have more conversations, it was funny, the Daily Beast came out with an article accusing conservatives and, uh, you know, radical or gender critical feminists of getting together to fight trans rights. And the evidence that this was based on in the Daily Beast beast piece in particular was that some conservative Christians had read some of Janice Raymond's and Sheila Jeffrey's writing from years ago. And that was their premise for saying that there was this alliance. And I mean, at some point, you've just got to think like they're going to accuse us of this all day long anyway. I mean, they, they, they also based it on, you know, they mentioned in their article that there were you know, discussions between feminists and conservatives in the 1970s over the porn fights. And I mean, that was a long time ago. You, you can talk about what happened or whatnot, but, but clearly this was not like a good faith accusation. And moreover, the more I started thinking about it, it's like, 
men are never criticized for making these kinds of alliances or having these kinds of discussions. I mean, people have been, you know, in the environmental politics world where I used to work have been just over the moon about, you know, how genius it was of groups like the Sierra Club to work with, um, you know, hunters and fishers in the Mountain West to engage in land conservation. And these are not liberal people um, by anyone's definition or leftist people. They tend to be very conservative. But yet this is genius because the policy idea, you know, getting more land conservation is a great goal, according to the left. So no one criticized their methods. Um, we, you know, it feels like feminists are always being accused of being, you know, the unfaithful wife, essentially, to the left, like they own us. So we started talking to other conservative women just by happenstance, sort of. Um, it And... Kaylee Trillerhaver and Marion Ben Shalom started a group called Hands Across the Aisle, which is just sort of an informal discussion group. And the ground rules are we don't argue with each other about abortion and we don't argue with each other about marriage. We're there to talk about gender identity because it poses a significant existential threat to the rights of all women and girls. And it's a concern of us all. And so we're just going to be in this fight together. And We've had a lot of very, you know, productive conversations develop out of that. Mm -hmm. And so are those the main points of contention, would you say, around these these women on the right that you've been working with on this issue, the marriage issue? And um, was it is it gay rights and, and marriage? No, abortion. Abortion was the other one that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, those those are the issues that, you know, and certainly if you see op-eds by people on the left in the U.S., they'll always go back to these points saying, how could you work with these people who are opposed to abortion? How could you work to the, with these people who are opposed to gay, to gay marriage? I mean, Barack Obama didn't support gay marriage when he was first elected into office. And he signed multiple executive orders restricting federal funding for abortion and reiterating that there was going to be no such thing under his administration. And he, you know, declared the Hyde Amendment settled law. And it's like, do you mean anti-abortion like Barack Obama was? You know, I mean, under his administration, dozens of abortion clinics closed in the U.S. and Democrats did virtually nothing to stop them. I mean, they certainly didn't do anything like, you know, threaten to boycott an entire state because they were getting ready to try to close down their last abortion clinic. So, I mean, I don't, the idea Sorry that to interrupt. when you mentioned boycotting an entire state, I assume you're referencing um, the so-called response or the response to the so-called bathroom bills. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like in North Carolina. And there were several, you know, I, I don't know if they went quite international, but definitely, you know, big national name brands, tech companies, uh, sporting gear companies, just all, all of these groups um, and, gosh, entire state governments saying that they were going to boycott travel to these states. Nothing like that has ever happened for, like, any women's rights cause in the U.S. ever. Not ever. And so the idea that there is some perfect ally out there who will give us a voice in time to stop our rights being legislated away, 
I feel like is kind of ridiculous. I don't think that exists in this country. And this legislation is like snowballing towards us, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So Kathleen, um, you and, and some other feminists have been quite critical of the idea of allying with the right. Um, and this conversation, from my perspective, as far as I can tell, mostly kicked off based on a panel that happened recently in the U.S. where some feminists were, were on a panel hosted by the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, and they talked about their concerns around gender identity legislation, ideology, and, you know, feminists are... For obvi are obviously on the left, so left wing feminists were were critical of of women being on this panel and and you know working with the right to fight this when they disagreed with the right on so many other issues. I wonder if you can talk a bit about your criticisms and maybe if you want to respond to some of the things that Natasha brought up sure um i first well first, I want to make clear that i'm not um I don't have particularly clean hands myself in every respect in this issue. I mean, I've um, talked to people from the Murdoch Press and and um, they've discussed my stuff in a way that has helped me, uh, for instance. So I am not saying, and I wouldn't want to say that you should never ally with the right, given that the right is so such a broad spectrum anyway. So I guess the people that I'm most concerned about allying with uh, potentially are uh, social conservatives, Christian fundamentalists, and um, also the far right, the outright um, people who have strong views about immigration. And uh, what I don't particularly feel like getting into the specifics of the Heritage Foundation event because I feel I don't have the relevant context. In my, I actually tweeted twice <laughs> critically about this. <laughs> that's, a, that's the sum total of what I've said. But what I want to say, I suppose, is that um, I think there's a bunch of people uh, in this that we need to persuade, that we need to win over. And um, in Britain, certainly, I would characterize them as kind of neutrals. They are compassionate, broadly speaking, and they, if they are motivated to, to uh, go for gender self-ID or to think that trans kids should be um, given drugs, uh, then they do so from a position of compassion and concern, uh, and they don't really understand the issues. Now, I think we need to win those people over. It's not actually that hard to win conservatives over to these issues. They're already there. So most of the ones I know anyway, they, they get it immediately. They don't, they, they're absolutely appalled at the way things are going. So as far as I'm concerned, it's pretty easy to win them over and we don't need to spend a lot of energy on it. But we do need to win, especially in the UK, win over, um, and I, th I take it the Democrats too, right, in the US, uh, the those on the left or liberals, progressives, however you want to call it. And um, I don't think we will do that. Uh, we make ourselves life so much harder for ourselves if we give them ammunition um, by associating with people who ultimately are not our friends. I mean, I, don't, I, I take it that not, none of us talking now are single issue feminists. We do not care only about gender self-ID and only about trans issues we care about a wide spectrum of issues that affect females and I think that in order to maintain that reputation and also to live with ourselves um, we shouldn't draw we should draw lines um, in 
necessarily, I'm not saying it's all or nothing, but I think there are lines to be drawn. So I guess there's two issues. One is like the strategic um, success of affiliating with people whose aims seem so counter to the people we want to win over. And the second is, I guess maybe this is also a strategic point that, you know, what do we do if we win this particular battle? You know, will it be worth it if we lose all the others? Um, I don't want to lose uh, women's reproductive freedom. I don't want to lose the ability to talk about um, the experience of female immigrants and how they're disproportionately affected. Um, I don't want, I want to be able to carry on talking about those things. Um, so I worry that we lose the ability to do that when we ally with social conservatives who really are only interested in a very narrow range of interests. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do, would you, did you want to respond to that, Natasha? Sure. Um, so I think that what happened with the Heritage event kind of highlights why, you know, and I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you how to like run your campaigns in the UK because I'm not, you know, an expert on your political system there. But here, I mean, that, that panel was set up because the mother of a, a teen girl who has suddenly decided that she was a boy has been looking for four years to try and get anyone to highlight this issue and highlight the medical harms to children. And she couldn't find anyone. She is a lifelong liberal. She has been turned away everywhere that she went um, until finally Heritage said yes. And one of the reasons she approached them was because two years ago, uh, through uh, Hands Across the Aisle, there was another Heritage panel um, where a couple of feminists, Miriam Ben Shalom and Mary Lou Singleton, um, showed up there to talk about the harms of gender identity laws. Uh, curiously, you know, the sky didn't fall down. You know, there wasn't the same kind of fury over it. So I was a little taken aback by the extremely different uh, reception this time, but there's nowhere else to go. And she had invited us um, at Wolf to try to supply speakers because these parents, we got to meet some of the parents and talk to them both before and after the event. They have no one to talk to about this in their very liberal communities. Uh, the lesbian couple who was sitting across the table from me afterwards one of them was in tears talking about how lonely they feel, how they feel rejected even in their church. Um, I mean, the stories that they told, uh, one of them, their daughter, who, you know, was taught as a minor to inject testosterone by her doctor in a, you know, liberal blue state. Um, their daughter is now, she's had a complete hysterectomy. She's had a mastectomy. She's living homeless on the street. And because she made a claim to her doctors and therapists about gender identity, they never followed up to treat any of their other, her other significant mental health concerns. Sure. And so you've got all these medical harms going on and like children being cut up and having like doctors engage in self-harm for them every day here. Girls as young as 14 getting put into menopause. Girls as young as 13. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Something I mean, has to don't, stop. 
this. Don't get me wrong. I think it's Such absolutely disgusting that the left in America will not platform people who want to talk about this. I think it's, it's outrageous. And I am fully on board with thinking how disgusting well, it is. It's just that they won't platform us. It's that they will they will ignore threats against us. Yeah, I I I, I mean, I think I have a flavor of what the situation is like. And I, I mean, if, if it turns out, you know, I'm not I'm not one for black and white myself. So if it turns out this was the right decision, well, time will tell. And that, you know, it could well be. But my general point is that there are a lot of extremists interested in drawing the same conclusion in a very narrow range as feminists, as left socialist Marxist or, or radical feminists. Um, so you know, that we, there are people interested in this from a range of perspectives that will come to the conclusion that, um, that trans activism is wrong, uh, but they might do it for very, very different reasons for us. They might do it out of pure disgust. They might well do it out of transphobia. And I have noticed, I think our side is not good, is not performing well enough at the moment in identifying where the motivations for that conclusion should be criticized. I think there are people on board with us that are not there for the right reasons and we should be saying so. And and there's this sort of imperative on us that keeps coming on. No, you've got to hold together, hold the line. We've, you know, you mustn't air your disagreements in public. But I think it's important to air those disagreements in public. So um because we're all free thinkers and if if we didn't believe in I mean we believe in speaking out about what we feel we wouldn't be here if we didn't so um i don't want to get too hung up on the heritage event i you know it's your decision and and that's fine i don't i'm not asking anybody else to i'm asking everybody to um draw their own lines but generally speaking i think we have to be really really careful that we don't end up in bed with people who are whose values we you know abhor because it's strategically in the short term in our interest to do so because in the long term it's gonna screw us up i think and screw up other people so i guess i mean i also i want to be transparent in terms of my perspectives on this issue just because i i don't want to pretend to be completely neutral if i want so for me i i guess i draw a line between speaking to and engaging with the right and i'm in maybe a different position because i'm a writer and a journalist so i consider it an obligation as far as my job goes to talk to media whether that media is right-wing liberal left-wing whatever um so i draw i i see a difference between allying with the right and talking or engaging with the right i wonder if if you draw a line there, um, I'm asking both of you, maybe Natasha, you can start. Well, you know, certainly I don't, I don't have any interest in, you know, like I wrote the other day in that blog post, I mean, no Nazis, I feel like is a good line for people to draw generally. Um, I don't, I don't know how, we can be expected to engage functionally in politics in the U.S. if we're going to be both entirely blacklisted, no platform, threatened, what have you, by the left, and we're also going to decide that an entire half of the country's voters and political spectrum is like also off limits to talk to. I mean, one of the things that I was 
I was fired for was criticizing an article that was talking about how uh, third-party advertisers of child sex trafficking need to be held harmless and that really the laws against that are, are what the problem is, are the real harms to children. And like this, this is a liberal publication ostensibly and that article is still up and all of the people who supported it and thought it was great still have their jobs and I don't. And, you know, like what, what is the moral line there? Am I, am I supposed to ignore that and say, oh, but the left are still my friends? No, I don't, (laughs) I don't think so either. (laughs) You know, like it's, it's, it's an awkward and weird situation that I did not expect to find myself in. But nonetheless, like I say, this legislation is, is coming towards us on a national level very fast. And some of the people in, in the U S who have been criticizing us, and I don't just mean saying like, Oh, well, I think this was a bad idea or that was a bad bad idea. I mean like women calling the lesbians who participated in it, Judenrat or Nazi collaborators or comparing the heritage foundation to like Pennywise the clown. And we're like hypnotized children following him down the drain. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was a theme that yeah. he put up the other day on on kind of a prominent U.S. feminist page, and these kind of personal attacks, like it just doesn't help anybody. Yeah, I agree with that. Right, okay. and I mean, I guess I'll ask you to respond, of course, Kathleen. But I I also wanted to add. I think that I wonder if part of the the issue here is that things in the US are maybe a bit different than things in the UK in terms of options. Um, But I mean, because I think the UK is much farther along in terms of being able to engage with progressives. I think that they have been able to, I'm talking about radical feminists and specifically in terms of this gender identity issue, I think that they've been able to engage left-wing people in a more successful way than than U.S. women have been able to, and even in Canada, I mean, Canada, my experience has been that we've not been able to have this conversation until very recently when we held our own event because the media won't cover it, they won't talk to us, the left has fully ostracized and smeared us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so... I, I mean, first of all, I, I do think that there's sort of, we, we talk about the left and the right, but there's all sorts of people who are on the right, supposedly, who have different views and who, you know, you know, there's a spectrum over there as well. And so, I mean, and again, personally, I am sort of open to talking to right-wing people and engaging with right-wing people and trying to get them to understand what's going on with this issue if they don't already. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kathleen, maybe maybe you can speak to that question of whether or not you see, what does it mean to ally with the right versus to, you know, maybe be on a platform hosted by the right or to speak to right-wing media or try to engage right-wing people and, and get them to take action on this issue or something like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, as I wanted to come in loads when Natasha was talking there because there's so much to pick up on. Um, I agree uh, that, or at least I don't know if you were saying this, I think you might have been saying this, that there's there's no one thing really that's e- easily defined about to, to say what the left is or the right. So um, 
the left, especially in America, quite often people describe themselves on the left in America, and I just do not recognize it looks so individualistic and material and um, capitalist. I just think, in what sense are you really interested in traditional left-wing things, um, except that you're into identity politics, which I do not see as sort of a central part of left politics at all. So, so I don't, there's loads of, loads of people who describe themselves as leftists that I have no interest in talking to. <laughs> and equally, there are people on the right, because the right is so broad, it could be fiscally conservative or socially conservative or um, libertarian or, you know, or just classic liberal, which in, in, in England anyway, is considered more centerish than left. Um, and of course, I want to talk to those people. I mean, members of my family are, fall under some of those categories, and I get on okay with them. You know, I, I I just don't believe in this splitting into factions or tribalism. I think I'm always a bit suspicious of people who who sort of sign up um, 100% to a political ideology without questioning at least some bit of it. Um, so that that scares me a bit when people are really kind of. Uh, messianic about a particular cause politically but um I so I I think talk to the right yes but so I'm afraid there's no neat answer to this but there's just aspects of the right that I'm highly uncomfortable with uh, those those are the you know the, the sort of people that are attracted to a very conservative idea of the family I think they're never going to be our friends in the long run I think um, people who are attracted to far-right narratives about immigration and racial purity um, should not be anywhere near us, and we should not be anywhere near them. Um, so just those those are the, the, the versions of the right that I'm not sure I even want to talk to. That, of course, I mean, I think, again, the, the question's ambiguous because it could be talk to voters who people who vote for that or talk to politicians who are on the who occupy those positions and again there might be different answers there too like maybe you want to talk to people who are voting for um the far right but you would never want to talk to the politicians themselves i would think so yeah there's that and i, and I also wanted to add that i really agree natasha that the hyperbole around the heritage foundation event um, has gone way too far and it's just being used as a stick to beat you with as you know the sticks are always used you said earlier they're all you know they're going to accuse you of it all day long anyway um, and I think that's right but I suppose my general position is you know they are always going to accuse you of things they they accuse you um, Megan of things they accuse me of things but then if we end up looking like we're doing them <laughs> then that's that's that plays in a way that's sometimes unfortunate. So um, sometimes I think we should just like take the accusations and not think, oh, well, I, I might as well just do it anyway, because it takes it to another level when we actually do those things um, in well, their eyes. My, my reaction to it wasn't even so much about like, oh, well, if you say I'm going to do that, then, you know, that I can't do that, then I will. It, it was more like thinking about it. And well, so this week, uh, Emily Gorchensky, that might not be. Yeah, no, no, I do know who that is. Yeah, I you know, know who that is. Uh, it's a very militant Antifa U.S. Twitter figure, a, a trans identified male 
who's posed, you know, with his with his gun at a firing range talking about, you know, I'm not kidding about the militant parts, Turks, um, and talking about all Antifa groups, you know, now need to treat um, radical feminists like Nazis, um, you know, just said that, oh, well, Faith Goldie, who's, you know, kind of a extreme far right figure is like criticizing gender identity. So that means that you know, radical feminism is white supremacy was basically the gist of this Twitter thread. And none of us have ever talked to this person. It's, it's just a bad faith criticism and it's a permanent criticism that's been made before it was true. But also again, I'd like to reiterate, they never, you know, there's no consequence for the fact that they are so in with conservatives over in the UK that the Gender Recognition Act reform was being pushed by the Tories or that Tara Hewitt, who's a prominent trans activist, is a is a Tory. There's no pushback for their outreach to conservatives here where like the log cabin Republicans. I mean, we've got a very flattened out political system here because we only have the two parties. Yeah. And that ma- mathematically speaking, that's all we're yeah. ever going to get. So, you know, I mean, I I did also want to say, though, that um, I think it's it, Megan, I think you might have been suggesting that, you know, it's somehow in the UK, it's easier to get a platform to discuss these things. I really don't think that was true. I think it is down to the really amazing work of A Woman's Place um, and Fair Play for Women, who position themselves very cannily um, in terms of setting out their principles in advance, making clear that these were women in a woman's place case these were socialist principles uh they are trade unionists they um were transparent as much as possible they got trans women on the platform with them so they they thought about how it went and they had traction but the, before that and obviously they faced like endless protests endless venue shifts endless accusations of transphobia they had a bomb threat at one point so it wasn't easy but they persist and persist and persist and I think it's down to them that the landscape has changed a bit here but it wasn't you know it wasn't easy I don't think that was true right yeah also, that's a fair point and, and Venice is uh we need to talk events yeah. of course also yeah. platformed feminists and lesbians which opened up the conversation too so sure. you're right that it totally has been the hard work of, of of just women over there in the UK forcing the conversation sorry were you going to say something Natasha I was just going to say that we're so spread out here I mean a big problem is like you'll talk to radical feminists that you meet like on Facebook or Twitter and she doesn't know anyone in her town mm-hmm. or in her city or there's maybe like five of us who know each other in a state and many of us live in states that are geographically speaking bigger than the UK. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard to get meetings together at all in the, in the same sort of a way, Mm -hmm. you know, and then like with the, the flattening of politics, like everyone who's associated with the right, I guess, technically they bear some vague tenuous connection to like, say Steve King of Iowa, but that's just not, it's not a good picture of the, you know, the many different factions. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I take the point. I, I wanted to talk about this question of optics, um, because I think about it a lot. And it's obviously <laughs> something that's come up with regard to this question of, um, you know, feminists sitting on a Heritage Foundation platform or talking to right-wing media or engaging with right-wing politicians and that kind of thing. Um, Because I do think it is, 
you know, optics was something that I was concerned about for a long time. So I totally understand feminists who are worried about what it looks like for us to be on right-wing media or engaging with right-wing people or working with right-wing people or whatever you want to call it. Um, But at the same time, I mean, Natasha pointed this out, I think, too, radical feminists have been smeared in all sorts of ways always and kind of by everybody like the left liberals the right in the media um Uh and i sort of i I mean i hate to admit this but i've sort of almost given up on the optics angle because it doesn't seem to work because no matter what i've done no matter how many times i say i'm a socialist i'm a socialist i'm a socialist people still accuse me of um being right wing or in bed with the right or you know all sorts of other things being like a white supremacist or um whatever but i wonder what you think about that that optics thing i mean is do you think that's like a worthy goal to continue to try to represent ourselves as left wing despite the fact that the people who hate us aren't going to listen to what we say anyway <laughs> um, are you asking me yeah you can start <laughs> um Yes, I think I, well, I mean, one, you're being true to your values, which is good. And two, I mean, I get it does depend on who you're trying to persuade. But I continue to think it's important to persuade people on the left or in the center who might go either way um, that, you know, that we're right. So um, it's, as I've said, I think it's important to present ourselves in a way that's kind of pal um what's the word uh that that they can swallow basically that they can deal with that they're not going to be repulsed by um in terms of our presentation so um and i i mean but if in relating this to your question of whether there's a difference between talking to and allying with the right i think if you're clear about your values like really clear and there's no sense being given over that you somehow compromised on some level that there's something you're not saying because it might really upset them or there's, you know, there's for some other reason you're strategically keep, keeping quiet about something, then people can see that. And, and I mean, I'm talking about sane people, like normal people, people who aren't already ideologically in the grip of some insanity, they could, they recognize that and they respect it. So um, I think if you're going to, if you're, if one is going to um, talk to the right, even ally with the right, they should do so with full transparency. That's the only kind of optics that would work in that context, I think, for the left, is if you keep, you know, you, you remain true to the core values. And 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 that's what, in a way what I find a bit queasy about hands, Hand Across the Aisle. When I look at their website, it looks like, although they both seem to superficially agree, the radical feminists and the uh, the conservatives that gender harms people. I don't think they're even talking about the same thing. I don't think they're talking about gender um, under the same description because of the feminists, the radical feminists, are talking about gender as a kind of socially constructed set of stereotypes around sex that harms females, and um, the conservatives are talking about something like gender identity or something like that. And it's far from clear to me that the conservatives would want to get rid of the socially constructed meanings around sex. They, they seem happy with quite a lot of them to do with homemaking and family and all that stuff. So um, that's, that's what's, I mean, I'm sure they do good work, but on the face of it, it looks like in order to make that alliance, they've had to, each had to kind of keep quiet about something fundamental to their 
views, or at least the radical feminists seem to have done so. And I don't think that's very good optics. What do you think, well, Natasha? It, it's definitely around, on on both sides, we are very much united in opposition to gender identity policy. I mean, mm. it's the policy specifically that the pro- that's the problem. It's It's laws that are being enacted that you know, are stripping girls, women and girls of the right to have their own sports teams or to have privacy when they're changing in the locker room, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we we all agree that these things are bad, but I would also say, you know, having left a very conservative Christian sort of, you know, social environment when I was a teenager and now coming back as an adult and meeting with people in conservative politics i you know they've changed in the last 30 years too i mean they're they're not they're not throwbacks to a hundred years ago like the easy caricature is a lot of them you know have lesbian and gay friends they i mean if you see the polling on that issue about conservatives as a whole it's changed over you know the last few decades Um, the women don't, you know, they don't necessarily have the positions that you would expect. Most of them, most of the women in the group have some kind of career. Um, I mean, it, it's really very reductive to sort of assume that all conservatives think that women should stay home, even, you know, while that might be sort of a stereotype of U.S. conservatives, like you meet people and talk to people and that. I just don't think that's true. I don't. I don't think yeah. that's what most of them think anymore. I okay, and I take the point that I may be exaggerating, and I certainly am not in touch with U.S. conservatives in the way you are. But I, I mean, I didn't mean to imply that they all think they should stay home. I mean, I come from a Catholic background myself, and I, I just mean that there's a set of stereotypes that are in some way restrictive, whether it's about the fam- the priority of the family or whether it's about um, reproduction or whether it's about whatever it is, you know, sexual behavior or homosexuality, that um, I take it they wouldn't reject at every stage in the way that radical feminists might. And I just see that rejection of those stereotypes as central to what my feminism is. So it's hard to imagine a world in which I just kind of kept quiet about that bit as long as we could get the policy sorted out because that's just one piece of the puzzle for me I mean important piece absolutely crucial piece but still we it's like not a single issue it, <laughs> huh? I we we've actually had fairly extensive conversations about it and I mean one of my I mean now I can only in the U.S. basically get published in the Federalist which as you may know or I don't know maybe you've never heard of it uh is a pretty conservative publication that I share like two opinions with. And <laughs> I mean, they, one, one of my articles there was top to bottom about rejecting gender stereotypes um, as, as regards to the, that UK show Butterfly that came out and talking about oh, how if a, if a boy wants to wear a dress i mean men have worn garments like that throughout history this does not mean that he's a woman and that got published in the federalist and my you know our conservative uh compatriots shared the heck out of it they loved it so i don't i don't feel like i've had to keep quiet about that um 
But okay. didn't did the Catholic Church help with some of the haven't like alliances with with local Catholic groups help with the the fight for the Nordic model? And I, I mean that's know. that's a feminist fight. Um, yeah, I mean that obviously you're the people you're. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I, it doesn't surprise me if that's true, although I don't know the details because I know that people will make strategic alliances just like you've done, and that's you know, fine, um, maybe. But I think from my position, all I'm doing is expressing some reasons to be a bit cautious about those sorts of alliances. Um, okay, I yeah, I want to try to wrap up. I really appreciate you sharing your perspectives on this and um, talking about this and. I guess I, I want to finish first by, I mean, if you want to make any further comments on this issue, please do go ahead. Um, but I wanted to try to finish on the question of strategy and what you both think are some good strategies as far as fighting gender identity, ideology, and legislation that, of course, threatens to erase women as a legal entity in a class of people, thereby erasing our sex-based rights. Um, and you know what we can do. How you think that we'll we'll win this fight? Maybe uh, Kathleen, you can start. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I can only speak for myself. So I, I also think there should be different strategies for different people and different skill sets. And um, I am not, although I have been accused recently of trying to set myself up as some kind of like voice or leader or whatever. I really, really never came into to do that and do not want to. So I'm just speaking of for myself, but I found my my aim is to talk to the people, the neutrals, basically, like the neutrals who, um, who don't already have a position on this, who don't even know really what it's about, um, and whose opinion could be altered were they to I mean, if they if they do have an opinion, their opinion is still kind of relatively shallow, um, has relatively shallow roots. So talk to them, explain very clearly um, the situation and not get caught up in. I mean, obviously, I fail to do this from time to time, but generally speaking, not get caught up in the drama, the emotion, the anger, the defensiveness um, that can very naturally <laughs> feel I feel, you know, I've felt so much emotion since I came into this it's like I'm a wreck because but you've got to kind of not get sucked into that because it doesn't play well I think with people who don't have any particular view they just want to know what the issues are and um and it's not that hard to see the damage that's been done if you can you know I don't feel like this is a a hard sell to people once we can kind of find the right narrative for it um children being sterilized or um females being assaulted by male-bodied people in prison it's you know it's not it don't, you don't have to do much with that so I just think keep on for me that's what I'm doing and that's what I'm going to try and carry on doing just kind of exploring the kind of philosophical issues in an accessible way and talk but infusing it with real life material facts as well about the legal situation the social situation and so on um, I think there's a real role for activism as well. And I really think this is some amazing stuff that's being done at grassroots and, and activism, like um, events and happenings and protests. That's that's really, really good too. Um, and uh, then just got to 
also lobby our politicians to get off their asses and do something. <laughs> and I don't know what I don't know how you do that in the North America, but in the UK you go and see your MP and you talk to them. Great. Thank you so much for that. Those are some really great suggestions and ideas. <laughs> um, <laughs> Natasha, what do you think? I don't need to tell you. I, Megan, I don't need to tell you how to do Well, that. we're talking to the listeners, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it in my own I way also. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> Natasha, you know, well, what do you certainly, think? Sorry. We certainly need, you know, and I want to thank you for your your writing on this subject, Kathleen. I we were all so excited to see the Economist covering this issue. You know, sharing it all the Facebook groups like, oh my gosh, the Economist yeah. is covering it finally. Uh, you know, it's breaking through, and that's that is a really important aspect of the fight. Um, and that was one thing. The last two weeks in the U.S., um, we have gotten more press coverage and and interest in this issue than I think maybe in the last two years, you know, which is a big deal. Andrew Sullivan noticed it. And even though he was kind of, you know, a little snippy about feminists, I mean, he's not a big fan of feminism, so it's hardly a surprise. But, you know, he laid out the case for why gender identity undermines the very basis of gay rights, which is based on the idea that there's same-sex attraction and you can define this in the law that it it's it's mm. got a material basis yeah. for giving people those rights that is undermined by saying that there's no material basis that the law can recognize in terms of sex. Um, you know, and Posey and Julia and Venice came over here and I mean, they they had planned out every aspect of the trip with all of us over here. And they just I mean it really helped get a lot of attention and awareness and publicity for it. And I hope that we can, you know, sort of replicate their, their good results. I think, I think it really gave a lot of heart and encouragement to women over here. Um, but I guess what I, what I would really hope is that anyone who's listening in the U S like make a plan to call your legislators, your, your senators, your representative, maybe your state legislator, and start talking about the harms of this. Uh, you don't have to be a, a, a wolf member to use, you know, we've put up some some materials on our site and there will be more um, that can kind of get a conversation started off with them. Uh, but we, you know, trans rights activists are about 10 years ahead of us on this issue in terms of talking to Congress and talking to state legislators and networking with whoever will talk to them. And we we have to start being part of the conversation that starts with legislators hearing from their constituents. Emails are okay, but calls and appointments at their local offices are like gold. So please do that if you can. Thanks. Mm Cool. Thank you so much for uh, to both of you for um, coming on and having this conversation and talking about what has been a bit of a contentious topic lately. <laughs> so That's okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And it was really nice to talk to you both. So thanks for that. Thanks, Great. Kathleen. Thanks, Megan. It was good talking to you both. You just heard an interview with Kathleen Stock, a professor of philosophy at the University of Sussex, and Natasha Chart board chair of Women's Liberation Front, and a member of the cross-partisan Hands Across the Aisle Coalition. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. 
Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.